This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Equity Mind. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates. Our aim is to help you on your investing journey, break down the barriers from beginning to dividend. Whether you're an absolute beginner or Warren Buffett, we guarantee that Equity Mates will have something for you. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my Equity Mate, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm very excited for this interview. We've got a superstar fund manager joining us. Yes, big star. Looking forward to it. It is our pleasure to welcome uh, Emma Fisher to the studio. Emma, Thank welcome. You. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So, Emma, is Portfolio Manager and Head of Research at Early Funds Management. She co-manages the Early Australian Share Fund, which its ticker is AASF on the ASX. Um, Emma, we always start with a game, so let's get stuck in. So the game is overrated or underrated, where we throw out a th- investing theme or index and we just get your thoughts on whether you think it's overrated or underrated at the sure, moment. love a game. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start at home uh, with Australia's benchmark index. Overrated or underrated, the ASX 200? Look, I think in the long term, it's underrated for Australian investors. I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are local uh, investors, And I think, you know, you can't underrate the value of investing in your own backyard and businesses that you see, you know, the experience as a customer, um, you understand them. Uh, I think another thing in favour of the ASX, investing in the ASX is from a tax perspective, the franking credits and, and the dividend structure. Uh, as well as, you know, when you look at Australia and compare it to overseas markets, you know, we have a small but wealthy population. So you have these profit pools that often only really support maybe two or, or three players. Uh, and so, you know, hopefully the ACCC isn't listening, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you do tend to get these really cosy oligopolies and, and businesses that do have phenomenal returns profiles as a result of that. Like I always think when I go to London, I'm just sort of assaulted by the amount of advertising and competition there is there's like five big supermarket chains there's five or six telcos and then i come back to australia and i just think oh it's so sleepy it's <laughs> and, and, and new zealand's the same you know so for investors i think that long term it's it's underrated i think there's some really good businesses here that can earn really good returns yeah nice so then overrated or underrated the nasdaq 100 Oh, I'm going to say it's overrated. You know, wow. if, yeah. I, look, there are some businesses within that index that I'd love to own. Bottom draw, you know, businesses like Microsoft for sure. Mm. Um, but as a whole, right now, like I feel like we've been here before, guys. Like <laughs> EV to sales into perpetuity. Like it's yeah. you know, my, my problem with it is 
you know, everyone reads these statistics about, I guess, the proportion of loss-making businesses in the index is becoming, you know, as high as it was in the tech bubble. And and the, and the issue with that is, you know, if you require equity funding to sell the dream and to fund your business rather than it being funded through your internally generated cash flows, you know, you're relying on the equity window always being open and it's not always open and it won't be open and it will have nothing to do with these tech companies. It will be a global sell-off. So we saw it in March last year. If you'd had to raise at that point in time, it would have been very difficult to do so. Uh, and, and that was an anomaly of a downturn. Like if it was a downturn like the GFC where you wouldn't, the equity window would have been shut for these companies for 18 months, for two years, you know, a lot of them would have gone bust because they couldn't have funded their operations. So I think that's a really big risk that people are taking and I think you know you might disagree we might have different views on where we are on the valuation clock you know but I think most people think we're, we're it's 11 it's eleven thirty. like midnight mm. is coming you know we've got to drive home like it's not the time <laughs> to be doing tequila shots so I was looking at our uh, snowflakes valuation yesterday and it's uh 141 times next year's projected sales and it's just like when you think of that, it's just... I know, yeah. but I mean like oh god I don't we look I imagine we can get into this a little bit later but Afterpay is also on yeah, like 80, yeah. 80, 90 times trailing sales. So, I mean, the all, all it says is, you know, you're like all, all you can make a judgment about is risk reward, right? And so for me, I think the risk reward for a lot of these loss-making businesses looks pretty negatively skewed. Mm. Uh, speaking about uh, risk reward, uh, overrated or underrated GameStop? <laughs> and and given that it's dying down a little bit, I guess more the GameStop saga. Itself. Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So the stock itself is clearly overvalued by any <laughs> any normal sort of valuation metrics. But I guess as a saga, or as what it's telling us about society, like I don't think we should sleep on this. Like, you know, whenever wealth inequality gets as stretched as it is right now through history, you see revolution. And you know, I think it's kind of funny that we had you know, French Revolution, Russian Revolution. Chinese Cultural Revolution and today's revolution is just a bunch of guys on Reddit, you know, <laughs> buying meme stocks up, you know, to, in That's perpetuity. Crazy. But, um, but I think that you know, if you actually go on the Reddit forum and you see what these guys are saying, there, it's clearly there's this, there's this mentality that, um, you know, the asset price inflation coordinated by central banks. If you, it's just, it's led to this world where the haves have increasingly more if you own assets if you own a house if you've been in the share market you've seen your wealth expand and if you haven't then you've been left behind so you know even though everyone over time over very long time periods everyone's absolute level of wealth is rising wealth is such a relative concept and if everyone else is getting richer than you then you feel like you've been left behind and I think you know you read some of the stories in this forum it's people that want to stick it to Wall Street because their parents lost their jobs during the financial crisis and they feel like everyone got bailed out and no one was held accountable. Like I think they picked the wrong target. I mean, hedge funds weren't bailed out. It was insurance companies and banks and things like that. So I think they've – and the other thing that I think is a shame about it is I think shorting – we're a long-only fund, but I think shorting is a force for good in the market. Without shorting, you will have – rampant fraudulent activity and like that's going to mean that retail investors are much more likely to be burned um so i think it will be anything that you know that threatens shorts as a force in the market long term is bad but i think we should be paying attention because you know the markets right now are priced for perfection they're not priced for revolution i guess and and this seems to be this seems to be revolution Mm. so emma uh, overrated or underrated the australian property market uh I I think it's underrated. I think again, you know, from a tax perspective that 
the tax system is geared towards you making the bulk of your wealth through your family home because you don't pay capital gains on that. And then clearly the, the mortgage market is considered too big to fail. So you get this coordinated policy response from fiscal and, you know, the Reserve Bank and the government designed to keep property prices high because they're so endemic to our economy. So I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to be short Aussie property with that kind of backdrop. Yeah, you'd lose a lot it, of money. Exactly. And it's, you know what? It's it's maybe like long-term, it's not a very attractive ROIC, return on invested capital, but it's very attractive ROE because you're using other people's money. You're using the bank's yeah. money. So, yeah, for those reasons, I think it's it's probably okay. And then uh, final question in the game, we couldn't go without asking about cryptocurrencies. So uh, overrated or underrated Bitcoin? Yeah, I feel like I should have a really like strong answer on this because I guess technically I'm a millennial, but <laughs> the short answer is I don't know. Um, if, you, if I had to pick a fence, like I think buying one Bitcoin and putting it in the bottom drawer is probably not the worst thing that you could do. I understand why people are buying it. Uh, maybe I could propose an alternative investment, which would be if you're trying to protect your purchasing power in a world where everyone's control P on, you know, the money press, I would suggest gold. You know, gold has a 3,000-year history of protecting your purchasing power. Bitcoin, sadly, gold mining is probably better for the environment than Bitcoin mining as well. I don't know, actually. I'm just guessing that. That's actually a good question. I'd love to know that. Yeah, Yeah. we should put them head to head. But uh, I just like the track record. I like the track record of gold. But I think it's pretty sensible to react to what's happening in the world with some sort of view that, you know, you might want to put your money into alternative assets versus the US dollar. So, uh, Emma... We always like to hear the story of uh, our guests' first investment and uh, perhaps any lessons. So are you able to share yours um, with us today? Sure, yeah. I think technically my first investment was my grandfather gave my sister, my brother and I 50 Commonwealth Bank shares when we were like 10. And I paid no attention to it except that I got a dividend check like twice a year that I probably used to buy lollies or something. Um, But I do remember in high school, looking at the paper and looking up the share price in the paper. And that sort of like, I don't know, sparked something in me, but I never really paid attention to it. But I did always like making my own money. Like I had a paper run at 11. Um, I begged my parents to sign a waiver so that I could get a job (laughs) below the legal age. I mean, they didn't, I wasn't get, being shipped off to the coal mines or anything. I was working at <laughs> Video Easy. But my, my older sister had a job. She worked at Baker's Delight. She used to bring home bread. She could buy her own clothes. I was like, oh, I've got to get on this racket. Like these, this job thing sounds great. So I had all these menial jobs through high school, through uni, um, and I always earned my own money. And then investing, I think, was the next step about liking making my own money. Um, my grandfather, I think I would have been about 19, he gave me an annual report. Uh, Commonwealth Bank annual report. Uh, he loves the Commonwealth Bank, clearly. <laughs> um, and he had it open to the page, like the board of directors. And he, I think his argument was like, oh, look how many women there are. You could do something like this maybe one day. And I, it just sort of like led to a discussion about what an annual report was. You know, you get it once a year in the mail and it tells you how your business is doing. And then from there, like I think he was just desperate for somebody in his family to invest with him. <laughs> not, I did not come from a family of investors. My mum is a school principal. Um, and my dad works in industrial relations. So like, I'm the first one without a real job, basically, in my family. Um, so, you know, he was my, so it was definitely my grandfather's influence. Like he was um, a child of the depression, very cautious about money. And I think he loved this idea, like he's a classic dividend investor, loved this idea that you could put a lump sum of money to work for you and produce an income. 
Uh, so I think the first share, so he showed me how to open a, a trading account. And I think the first shares I bought was QBE. And then I just did that classic rite of passage where you're in uni and like your mates are giving you tips and you're buying like these speedy mining companies. You've got, you know, it's actually interesting. It reminds me a little bit of like when you read Wall Street Bets. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> you read these people and I remember being 19 and like thinking just because I owned something and I really wanted it to double, that it was going to double, like <laughs> just because I wanted it to. And like that was my thesis. Like I'd bought it. I knew the ticker, like what more do you want sort of thing. And, I mean, I can't remember. I probably lost some money on some speedy – I think a graphite company, a speedy graphite company. And and basically at that point, like I had the bug and I also thought I needed to figure out what I was doing. So I transferred my – I was doing commerce law, hated the law, dropped that, and I transferred into finance. Um, but you know what? Like when I look back, I actually don't think you need to study finance to do this job. Oh, I hope not because yeah. no. I saw I have. No, I actually think it's a bit of a waste mm. – Maybe I'm being controversial. <laughs> saying this. It's a little bit of a waste of time. Like everything I've learned about investing, I've learned on the job or yeah. I've learned through reading books. I think you can really self-teach it. There are a few concepts I got at uni, but I think I would have come to them anyway. So when I was at, uh, I was working at Fidelity before I was at Early, and they would send all their new recruits to London. Uh, and so you'd be, um, you know, I wasn't a graduate. I'd had a role in an investment bank beforehand, but we would go and we would work um, – we did this sort of intensive training course with a bunch of um, graduates from the London office and they'd all come out of like Oxford and Cambridge and they had to do this crash course in finance for two weeks before they could do the course with us because none of them, they'd all studied like geography and Russian literature and things like that. <laughs> and they got it in two weeks, yeah. like in two weeks. And I thought, you know, I should have, if I had my time again, I would have, you know, studied something way more interesting at uni. Than <laughs> I love finance, but corporate finance, like, you know, Medigliana and Miller and dividend theory and all of that, like, oh, someone else can have it. Yeah. Like, I if I had my time again, I would have done something differently. But yeah, that that was my path into investing, and I thought I had to study finance to get better at it. But really, it's just, you know, it's reading the books, it's reading the Warren Buffett letters, like yeah. what everyone does. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're now at uh, Ali. Um, you're a portfolio manager there. Um, before we get into talking about what you do there, have you developed a personal investing philosophy? Yeah. So I think you know. At Airly, the investment process is um, we look at balance sheet, we look at business quality, we look at management quality, and we look at valuation. Uh, and that's how we pick stocks. But I think any portfolio manager or any investor really also brings to it their own experiences, their own concepts. And for me, there's been a few things that I've come across in my career that like these concepts that really have stuck with me. So the first one, and you know, I've just rubbished my finance degree, but I did learn it. <laughs> I did learn it during my finance degree um, was this concept that financial markets are secondary markets. So they are, they exist to allow the real world to access capital. Uh, and I think that's a really important concept to never lose sight of, that you're investing in a business and all of the stuff that we talk about every day, like, you know, liquidity and volumes and trading and PE multiples and things like that, that's all the secondary world. That's financial markets. You're buying a piece of a business in the real world that has customers and, you know, costs and things like that. So that's a really important concept to, I guess, focus on. And then the second thing, and it flows from that, is that businesses change slowly. You know, they change over – even in with the fast pace of disruption, they're changing over years and decades, um, whereas in the stock market, their prices are changing really quickly. Like if you have a look at the 52-week high and low for, you know, the ASX 200, in a normal year, it's moving on average by about 45 or 50% from their highs and their lows. Like a year like last year, it's probably – I haven't looked. It's probably like 60 or 70%. Um, and that's interesting because we know that these businesses aren't changing in true value by 50% in a year, 
but these opportunities are coming our way. And so that's always like, that's what's enticed me into financial markets. That's why I find it exciting is you always every day have an opportunity to find a mispriced asset. Uh, And then finally, the thing that I think about the most, I guess, is that when you're investing, the thing that's going to determine the success of your investment is the economics of the business that you own. Uh, And I think about it like as a personal investor, if I wanted to start up a business, you know, there's not many opportunities that I would have to put my money to work and earn an attractive return on capital. Because basically everything that is available to me is going to have pretty low barriers to entry and and as a result probably pretty marginal returns. So like I could start a cafe, I could start – well, maybe I could start a competing podcast, but I'm sure you guys you guys are you know, probably in the <laughs> – you guys would be in the super profit space. You clearly stumbled upon a very successful niche. But, uh, you know, I could start a hair salon, things like that. And traditional economic theory is just going to bid down my return to, to a normal level. Uh, but through investing, I can access these businesses that do have high barriers to entry, that do have huge moats, uh, and I can just hitch a ride to these businesses that have phenomenal opportunities to allocate capital and earn high returns. So I've always liked that concept, and that's something that I always kind of keep in mind. And you know, as as everyone I'm sure has read about, like the power of compound interest, so holding these businesses for the long term. Uh, I think is a really powerful um, and exciting concept in investing. I actually love that idea about the everything we could do has low barriers to entry, so why not hitch a ride to a company that has a real moat? I'm definitely going to steal that and use that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, you know, in the start, like, and you guys, you run your own business, so you'd understand this. Like at the start, it's a really hard slog and it's very difficult to make a return. And then if you stumble upon a really good idea, eventually you can make phenomenal returns but you know maybe you could just short circuit that and invest in these really good businesses along the way like I'm not trying to dissuade people from starting their own businesses I'm just sort of saying hey in the background um, you know the the share market is there and I think it's a you know I really believe that everyone should learn the basics of investing and, and buy stocks themselves. You've covered off two things that we try to talk a lot about on the show, and that is you don't need a degree to start investing and that the the share market provides an awesome opportunity to invest in the brightest minds around the world from your bedroom, which is pretty phenomenal. So, yeah. Um, Hitch a ride will definitely yeah. use that one. <laughs> I feel like at some point I should plug the fact that you could also invest in the earliest train share. <laughs> no, no, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, <laughs> get, we'll get to that. But, but be- also be- do it yourself. Yeah, we'll get to that. But before we do, we need to protect our podcasting super profits. Uh, <laughs> You've hear heard about them, guys. Come for them. Come for them now. Launch mini podcasts. So we'll just hear a quick word from our sponsors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
So Emma, as we touched on before, you're the portfolio manager uh, for the Early Australian Share Fund, uh, ASX ticker AASF, if uh, anyone is interested. Um, so I guess for people who haven't heard of um, Early before, um, can you maybe give us an overview about you know, what you do, what you invest in and... Um, you know, just a, a bit about early. Yeah, so a little bit about the history of the business, I guess. So it was founded by John Sevior in 2012 uh, and the portfolio managers that I work with are John and Matt Williams as well. So John and Matt, before I joined early, I'd heard about their reputations. They have phenomenal reputations in the market as really good investors. They've both been investing for around 25 years uh, and they really built Perpetual into one of the most, I think probably at, at the time, the largest domestic fund manager. Uh, and then John left to start early and eventually Matt joined him. Uh, so we were running for a few years as an institutional only business. So we were running about $8 billion of primarily super money. Uh, and three years ago, Magellan acquired us. So um, the thinking there was that, you know, we ha- John loved picking stocks, but when you're running a business, as you guys would know, there's a whole bunch of admin and in, in our industry, a whole bunch of compliance that takes you away from your day job. Uh, so the tie up with Magellan really allowed us to give all of that back office to them and they do it fantastically, um, as well as bring a retail product to market. So this early Australian share fund launched uh, just after we were acquired by Magellan. So we launched in June 2018. So we're coming up to our third year of running the fund. Um, I run it with Matt, Matt Williams. Uh, and the partnership with Magellan has been fantastic. They have, you know, world-class marketing and distribution people and it's a really high-quality business. Um, yeah, nice. Yeah, we're big fans of Magellan. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it we is- hate admins, so... Yeah. <laughs> No, you know what I really respect about Magellan is um, a few years ago they came out and I promise you Hamish hasn't slipped me 50 bucks to say any of this. Um, A few years ago they came out and they said, you know, we sort of unabashedly put our unit holders and our investors first before our shareholders in, you know, the, the listed MFG. And I think that is a really good concept. Like, you know, we talk all these trends in the market about ESG and social license to operate and things. I think a lot of companies would do well to sort of sit down and think more broadly about who their stakeholders are, who their end customer is versus this kind of, you know, again, I guess I've always been taught that the role of a board is and the role of management is to maximise value for shareholders. But even that is a little bit problematic because it's sort of like, well, what time frame, which shareholders? Is it the long-term shareholders or is it, the, you know, the, the, the people that are just there for a quick buck? Um, so, you know, Magellan founded their business. It, you know, you asked before about early and how we pick stocks and um, one of the things that we always like investing in a founder-led business is now obviously we can't invest in Magellan, but we do in we own a number of businesses in our fund that are run by the original founders of the business that have um, huge skin in the game. Um, you know, some examples of that in the fund will be Mineral Resources, Premier Investments, Nick Scarly. Um, yep, yeah, there's there's a bunch of them. Yeah, nice. Well, speaking of stock picking, the fund is quite concentrated, mm-hmm. investing in what between fifteen to thirty five stocks thereabouts. How do you think about managing, I guess, such a tight concentration of stocks? Yeah, so I think firstly you have to believe in concentration as the road to outperformance, which we do. Uh, I mean, you know, I look at businesses, conglomerates, you know, and, I, and, and most of the time people will apply a conglomerate discount in their valuation because there's this view for businesses that diversification 
is sort of diversification that you have good businesses and netted off against the average businesses and you're left with a sort of like middling bunch and I think it can be the same if you own too many stocks like I always think you only have so many good ideas at any one point in time like why would you want to dilute those good ideas with less good ideas so I think you know concentration is is something that I believe in for investing I don't think you just have to diversify away any sort of idiosyncratic risk because then you're probably just going to get a market like return so you have to believe in it and then secondly, you know, you have to know the source of your conviction. Like you are taking big positions in companies. The composition of your fund won't look like the composition of the index. So your returns won't look like the index and hopefully in a positive direction over, <laughs> over time. Um, so, you know, you have to know why you own a business and you have to do the work. Like, you know, if I think about from a concentration risk perspective, a few years ago we had our largest absolute position ever in CSL. Now CSL is a big part of the index, so I guess to express a positive view on it, you do have to sort of tie up. I think at one point it was 8 or 9% of our capital in that one business. Uh, and that was a function of, you know, doing the work, I guess. So for CSL, uh, I went to Europe, I met with, you know, there's not that many players in the industry. So you meet with them all. And the thing about CSL is um, from a supply perspective, it takes three to five years to open a collection center and have the new product available to meet demand. So you have to be putting into place now um, the supply decisions for the demand that you see in three to five years. So when you meet with all the competitors and you say, how many collection centers are you rolling out this year and next year and the year after, you can build an industry model and you can, you know, if you if you take demand, which for three decades has run at six to eight percent, and you grow that at six to eight percent, and you then see how many collection centers everyone's rolling out. It was pretty clear that CSL were the only ones that were rolling out enough to to meet market demand. In fact, they were rolling out enough to meet two times market demand, and their competitors weren't. So basically, we formed this view that they were going to be able to grow. Not only were they in an attractive market, I mean, many markets you'd love to see six to eight percent demand growth after thirty years. I can't think of many businesses that have that kind of demand profile. Um, so not only was it a good market, but then you layer in the fact that they'd actually be running volumes at twice that. Uh, and then you have a look at consensus expectations and we formed the view that they were too low. So all that confluence of factors kind of came together and we took a big position. I mean, to be frank, today we have sold a lot of that position. We still own it in our fund, but I don't think the argument for the huge um, overweight position is there today when when the share price has um, a lot of that valuation gap has closed. And Everyone's expectations have risen. I think people now have cottoned on to the fact that they're, that they're, it's a market share gain story as well. So, But that's an example, I think, of, of when you run a concentrated fund, you really have to do, do the work. And then the final thing I'd say is with a concentrated fund, sometimes you have to think about what businesses you're just happy to kind of let go through to the keeper. Like I'm not saying that these businesses are bad businesses, but I don't you know, so I'll give you an example. So a business like a construction business, I think that's quite difficult to put in a fund like ours because you sit on the outside and you know they all you, the information that you get is maybe they've they've won an um they've won a billion dollar contract a billion dollar revenue contract to build you know a light rail or something like that. And if they've modelled it internally correctly, then they ma- might make a five percent profit margin on that. And if they've modelled it incorrectly, then they stand to they're on the hook for all the losses. So you as a shareholder are on the hook for all the losses. So that information asymmetry makes me nervous. Uh, we did a lot of work on Fletcher Building a few years ago. Um, we went over to, uh, to, I went over to New Zealand. I met with a number of competitors. So Fletcher Building have a lot of really good businesses, uh, but they had this construction business. And, and I'd always had this rule that I don't like construction businesses. So I ch- wanted to get a bit of comfort around that. And we met with a number of uh 
other construction businesses in New Zealand that had been underbidders on a lot of the tenders that they'd won. And if you added up the sort of the hundreds of millions of dollars that these underbidders had had been out underbid by, you you got a number that was pretty close to a billion dollars. And that ended up being, I can't remember exactly, but they lost, they ended up being on the hook for between one or two billion dollars worth of losses because they'd underpriced these contracts. So again, it's one where, you know, the whole business, the way that they made money was not from their construction business, but it had a very different risk profile to the rest of the business. So I think sometimes you just have to say, that's not my type of business. Um, we sort of feel the same way about, I guess I made some comments earlier about loss-making tech stocks. <laughs> um, you know that 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 they. I'm not saying they're bad businesses or bad investments, but they're not. Usually, they're not for us because they are reliant on equity funding, uh, and I don't think that's. It's a foregone conclusion that that's always going to be available. Yeah. So I imagine uh, one of the most difficult things about running a concentrated portfolio is um, knowing when to sell and. Um, knowing when to move on because there's a better opportunity out there. Um, how do you think about holding time and when to sell? Like, do you have a usual holding time? Are you you know, thinking in months or years or decades? Um, what's the thinking there? I mean, it really does depend on the stock. But I, broadly, we try to, you know, we're forecasting two to three years out. We're trying to buy businesses for a two to three, you know, hopefully five year plus period just because you do all this work. You know, the best dividend for it is to own these businesses for a long time. Um, but sometimes, you know, sometimes your thesis is wrong and I think you should sell if you think your thesis is wrong. Like the reason you originally bought it isn't playing out. Sometimes you have to sell for an opportunity cost perspective. So, you know, I mentioned we've trimmed some CSL and recycled that cap- capital back into, you know, ideas that we think offer better relative value. Um, but there's also, you know, this is all kind of, I guess, a bit of a textbook answer. But I th- I've been thinking about this a lot. I think there's also a little bit of, um, you know, there's emotion involved in it when you're, when you're buying something, you really have to listen to your head, not your gut, because your gut's going to tell you you're wrong because you usually you're buying something that's unloved or it's got a few flies on it or, you know, you really have to judge, listen to your judgment, your head, your analysis. I remember when we bought mineral resources, for example, uh, so we, we went substantial close to 18 months ago and the stock had fallen from 20 bucks to 12 uh, kept falling as we were buying it. It was at an all-time high short interest. I remember going to some event and it was a bunch of fund managers there and for whatever reason the stock came up and somebody near me sort of scoffed and said, <laughs> oh, that's a short. And I felt like an idiot, you know, that you do. You immediately think I'm wrong, not the masses. Um, and you really have to lean into that. You have to go back to your analysis and say, no, I think I'm right for this and this and this reason. So it's you know, it's almost biological. Like you're you, this, you're safe with the herd. Um, you know, if you're out on your own, you're going to get eaten by wildebeest. Like that's what it is in investing. So you have to kind of like lean into that fear and try to be very rational. And then when it comes to selling, it sort of flips, If especially if the stock's worked for you. So you look at the ticker and you're, you know, diffused with like positive energy. Yeah. And <laughs> your mind's flooded with dopamine and you're like, I am an investing genius when it comes to this stock. It can be really hard to know when to get off the train. So then you have to listen to your gut. You know what your original assumptions were in your DCF. You know when you're in your DCF and you get the result that you that looks a bit low. So you get back in there and you yeah. nudge up your <laughs> yeah. you nudge up your margin expectations. You lower your obviously we never play around with that stuff. The dark hearts of DCF, um, but you know when you you know when you've moved from being conservative to being aggressive in your assumptions. And sometimes I think you have to listen to that gut feeling. Um, the bigger risk that you should always be aware of, I guess, with a winner and with a really good business is the risk that you've sold too early. 
because there's nothing bigger, no bigger pain trade than watching. You know, I'll give you an example. A guy I work with at Magellan, um, I hope he doesn't mind me telling this story. He sold some Magellan stock to fund a pool that he was building <laughs> at like $15. And so this has just oh, no. become the most expensive pool of all time. <laughs> anyway, so I hope he doesn't mind me telling that story. Um, so, the, you know, these are, these are the things that you have to think about. So yeah. I wouldn't sell, like, if the thesis was playing out and everything was going right and the evaluation's not in the realm of crazy, I would just keep the business because, you know, valuation, it's, it's I don't know if something's worth 25 times or 28 times or I don't think anyone does. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's, selling is hard. It's definitely hard. So you mentioned the um, Mineral Resources, Nick Scarly, Premier Investments, CSL. Are there any other stocks that are sort of really piquing your interest at the moment that you're spending a lot of time researching on that you're allowed to – sort of share with the masses. <laughs> share with the masses, yeah, sure. Um, well, one that we've been – so we just put out our quarterly and we talked about this stock in our quarterly. So actually two stocks, so I'll talk about them, um, Tabcorp and Helios. So both fall into this category of um, businesses that we like where basically there's some asset rationalization opportunity where you can shrink the business and get better returns. And I think, you know, broadly when I think about investing there's two types of businesses you want to own there's your CSLs and your REAs and your really good businesses where you make money the only thing that you're asked everyone knows they're good businesses they're always on high multiples basically the only way that you make money is by holding them for longer than people you know everyone expects a fade in in their modeling and if you do the work that suggests that uh, either the earnings expectations are too low or that people are fading the earnings too quickly and the, the quality of their barriers to entry and their sustainable competitive advantage mean that they're going to make super profits for longer than people think. So those are businesses where you want to own them for a very long time. But then there are other businesses that people, um, you know, unloved businesses where, uh, you know, reversion to the mean can happen quicker than people think. And that the best type of business like that, um, the best kind of turnaround is one where you've got a good business and a bad business and you can do something about the bad business, whether sell it, spin it off, and then you've left with the good business and and everything re-rates. Like an example of that, I mean, I wouldn't call it a bad business, but Wes Farmers, you know. Just gonna, <laughs> I was just going to say that. No, yeah, it's yeah. not. It's definitely not a bad <laughs> Exactly. But it's not. Sucking no, Coles, the Coles isn't a bad business. <laughs> Coles isn't a bad business, but it was more capital intensive. And I think that, the you know, Coles does, I don't know, about a 15, 20% return on capital. Bunnings, 65% return on capital. It was being lost within the, the value of Bunnings was being lost within the conglomerate group. Uh, and so that was a really successful example. So for Tabcorp, they have the lotteries business. It's 65% of their earnings. And lotteries, you know, fantastic business. It's I would call it, you know, a toll road-like business, but I actually think it's had a better year than the toll road. So <laughs> A lot um, of that is actually Bryce buying lotto tickets through COVID. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like, and it's also, it's got this big tailwind of shifting online. Like people spend more money when it's online. They don't, also don't have to pay 10% to the retail, to the news agents when people buy it online. So for many reasons, it's a good business. I think we all know that. Um, and then wagering has been a real problem child. And now they're in this situation where, um, so when we bought it, we thought that they could just spin off wagering. Now it looks like there's a number of bidders who are interested in buying the wagering business. But either way, it comes down to the fact that you've got different natural investor sets. Uh, pension funds that have a very low cost of capital will be pretty happy to bid 
lotteries business standalone up to a pretty high multiple, but they don't want the cyclical wagering exposure. So when you split those two businesses, you're going to realize the value from a sum of the parts perspective. I think you're going to make money from realizing the different um, different cost of capital for those two businesses. I'm surprised in Australia that wagering cyclical. I would have thought that would be as structural yeah. as... <laughs> yeah, you know what? It actually is. If you look at the history, like the, the, the growth KGAR of wagering spend, it is, structure, it is a structural growth story. The problem for Tabcorp has been competition. Yeah, they used yeah, to make yeah. a lot of money through tote uh, and the pricing is just too high versus the corporate book, bookmakers' fixed odds. So their price has been coming down and they've had a number of headwinds that way as the market sort of opened up and you've had a number of new competitors come in. Yeah. So their earnings have actually halved in that business. So it hasn't even been cyclical. It's been a one-way structural ticket <laughs> down. But there were enough reasons that we thought that that was sort of bottoming out. Plus we thought, you know, the corporate interest angle that, um, that the stock was too cheap from that perspective. Uh, and then the other one in a similar vein, just quickly, was Helios. So Helios, um, it used to be known as primary healthcare, and it used to have a medical center business, a pathology business, and an imaging business. And the medical center business was like the Coles. It was the care- <laughs> oh, actually much worse than Coles. It was, um, you know, it was a bit of a broken model, if if you ask me. Like it never made a um, a return above its cost of capital. Very capital intensive. Uh, and so they sold that problem chart. And it also had too high gearing for us. We have a balance sheet filter that won't allow us to invest in businesses that we think are carrying the wrong amount of debt for their financial structure. And uh, Helios was at about four times net debt to EBITDA. So in selling the medical center business, they got rid of their problem child. They bought their balance sheet back down to um, you know below one times EBITDA. Add in the fact that they're making an absolute killing right now in pathology with COVID testing, which is, you know, you don't put that into the multiple, but it's real cash that the business is going to be generating over the next 12 months or maybe even longer. Uh, and we think that, you know, they've re-rated the business towards the better quality business. Wow. Well, look, I could listen to you talk your book uh, all day, <laughs> but <laughs> I could talk we're going okay? <laughs> to have to take a, another quick break and just hear from our advertisers. So, Emma... Whilst we could listen to you talk your book all day, we will move on. Um, given the year we just had in 2020 um, and you know the, the speedy drop and the recovery and then the unbelievable end of the year for you know, US tech stocks and the like, um, what, what were some of the major lessons you learned through that year? Yeah, I think whenever you have a market drop, like the speed of which we'd never seen before, um, you know, it's always for an individual investor, I think you can make a lot of money at these inflection points. And it's not about picking the bottom. Like if you're trying to pick the bottom, you will not do it and you'll keep yourself out of the market. But at times when there's just panic on and blood on the streets, it's a really good time to be allocating, you know, capital to the markets. And so I look back and I think, you know, what were the, like, look for the anecdotal signs that you're approaching a bottom. For me, it's, you know, I, I had a friend call me and say, oh, someone at their office was telling everyone to just, everyone to shift their super to cash oh, yeah. no. <laughs> i was like don't do that for me god i don't think she'd ever listen to this but my mom god bless her she's sort of my contrarian indicator like in january i should have known the market was at a top because she owns a bunch of stocks she texted me she's like my portfolio is up 40 percent this year i should be a fund manager oh. i'm like signs from the top um and then in march she was saying i'm not buying any more stocks the market's going down way way worse from here so again that's probably that's my you know like your dentist or your uber driver yeah, yeah, <laughs> for yeah. me it's my mom you so, could you could package up that and sell it to other fund managers yeah like, What's your mum saying? True. <laughs> That's true. Like a key shorty. Oh, yeah. God. Bless my mum. She actually has legitimately done very well through her investments. So maybe she should be a fund manager. 
So just on that where, you know, you, you don't try and pick the bottom, but it's an opportunity to allocate capital. At the time when the market was falling so quickly, we had a lot of members in our community wanting to put money in, but unsure about the actual strategy of how much to put in and um, how often to be putting it in. So do you have a strategy around allocating capital at that sort of point in the market? Well, so for us, we 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 can only run 10% cash as a maximum. And so we were kind of lucky that we were running pretty close to that sailing into the crisis. And that was, we don't usually try to like time the market and, and take a view with our cash holding, but that reporting season, there was just very, very little value on offer. So we let our cash run out towards this buffer. So we had the opportunity to sort of bring that down um, as we saw opportunities while they were falling. But for the individual investor, like maybe you could do it in tranches. Like if you have, I don't know, 50 grand to invest in the market, break it up into three and just say, I'm going to buy, you know, a third of it each every two or three weeks. Um, you know, the, the speed, it's worth talking about the speed of that drawdown because yeah. that was very unusual. You know, in the GFC, it took 210 days for the market to fall 30% from its highs. In the in the depression, so this is, you know, when you think of the Great Depression, you think of people jumping out of windows tragically because of the speed of the wealth destruction. And that, that fell 30% over 30 days. So in March, it fell 30% over 22 days. Like this had never been seen before. Um, and I think a lot of people, a lot of the conversations that I was having and hearing were this view that we were going to have time to assess the information and know when to turn more positive. It just didn't happen. So I think it's a little bit of a lesson. Like you have to, um, you know, when when the opportunities are becoming available to you and, and markets are gapping down, like that in and of itself is probably a force that tells you that where you are on the panic to greed sort of scale um, and, and – you know, you could have bought anything. You could have bought anything in March and you would have made money. Afterpay would have made a lot of <laughs> yeah. money. Exactly. You would have made a lot of money, definitely. I'm kicking myself that we didn't buy Afterpay at $9. I know. Yeah. I remember looking at the screen being like, $9, crazy. Yeah. And then did nothing about it. You know what? This goes to my earlier point that if, if um, you know, if March had gone on for longer and every drawdown in history would have to- told you that statistically it was likely that it was going to take longer than 22 days for the market to bottom, then businesses like Afterpay, they they raised in July, like they needed to raise. Yeah. Luckily, they raised at nine at sixty bucks, not nine. Yeah. But you know, they got lucky in yeah. that respect. And buying it at nine, I remember at the time why you don't because you start you think this business hasn't seen a cycle play out. Um, and 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 you know, you asked me, I guess, about the lessons. I worry that one of the lessons of this downturn, you know, is a is 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 a bad lesson. Is that and this isn't about afterpay, but businesses didn't really feel the full effects of their capital allocation. You know, we we focus on balance sheets. So we we went into the crisis with businesses that had better balance sheets, I guess, than the average company. But we, I think we should have, you know, benefited a little bit more from that. Like it was really only Virgin that was allowed to go to the wall. Like we, we try to own the best or the second best player in a market and a downturn or a recession can be great for the number one player because it, it, move, it moves out all the weak hands. Um, so we didn't really get to see a full economic cycle play out. And I wonder about that, what that's taught people in terms of their risk tolerance. I wonder on that as well. Um, businesses also, you know, businesses with bad balance sheets were protected in some ways by, you know, the, the Federal Reserve printing money and the Reserve Bank supporting the bond market and allowing them to raise debt that way. But then also the government stepping in and, you know, paying JobKeeper and stuff like that and protecting... Um, their cost structures as well. Do you think businesses, there's sort of like a, they're, they're learning that the government will step in and, and at some point the government won't? 
Yes, is yeah. the short answer. I worry that that would be the case. Now, it was a bit of a funny crisis in the sense it wasn't a typical credit sparked crisis. It was generally like how do we put our economy on hibernation to keep people safe? So I think the government did the right thing yeah, in, in terms of um, opening the, the taps for, for fiscal stimulus. But you're right, like broadly – uh, companies that make poor capital allocation decisions. You know that saying, like, it's only when the tide goes out you see who's swimming yeah, naked. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not sure how to turn this into an analogy without <laughs> getting into, you know, who was naked or not. But but it was, you know, basically really only Virgin and I think, I think it was Grocon was the other one that were allowed to go to the wall. And we don't want to see companies going to the wall. I don't want to see, you know, um, p- uh, people losing money and people being permanently put out of jobs and things like that. But... I just think for people's risk tolerance that it's it's a bad lesson to learn that, that, that we always had this view that, you know, the Fed was going to step in, but now layering in that, you know, the government's going to save you. I think, yeah, for, for risk tolerance and given where starting valuations are right now, I think that's a dangerous lesson to have learned. So, Emma, before we move to our final three questions of the interview, we're introducing a new segment for our uh, inter- interviews this year. So, you're the first, okay. first cut off the rank. Uh, this could go very poorly. <laughs> this, could go, this could go the wrong way. Um, we've had a lot of fun today, so we're going to be introducing the Fund Manager of the Year Award. <laughs> All we want to do is just uh, introduce our audience through socials a bit more about um, yourself and all the um, fund managers that we're going to be interviewing throughout this year. Um, but part of that is um, to get from you an, a stock, an industry, or a trend that you think we should be keeping a solid eye on over the next sort of 12 months. Okay. Thinking off the top of my head, I yeah. think, look, this is going to sound like a pretty vanilla answer, but a lot of the focus right now is like COVID winners and COVID losers and things like that. But what I would be watching is businesses that have been long-term beneficiaries of some of the changes, like the big changes that we've seen in society play out over the last 12 months. Like the obvious questions that we'd be asking are, you know, what's the future of office? Um, you know, what's the future of online shopping? So I would be wanting, you know, that I think there will be pockets of opportunity where everyone sort of uh, indiscriminately sells off anyone that's viewed as a COVID winner. I'm saying that in inverted commas. Uh, and I think there are actually going to be some businesses that get quite cheap because they're in the COVID winner basket that actually structurally benefited from COVID. So I'm thinking of some of the online retailers, for example, um, Premier Investments. So the position that they're in now is phenomenal. They've got 70% of their stores on holdover with landlords. So basically rolling rents month to month. So when um, when they go to renegotiate those rents, you know, they've got a lot of power and I think they can permanently enshrine maybe a 4 to 5% percentage point increase in their EBIT margins permanently as a function of lower rental expenses because of the, the position that they're in right now. They're also a beneficiary of, of the shift to online because a lot of retailers – Online is actually dilutive. If you're a bricks and mortar retailer, a lot of online sales is actually dilutive to your group margin. Uh, it depends on how you're setting it up. But if you, you know, that if you're giving free shipping, if you don't have an, a, a centralized DC, if you get, if you're, um, you know, getting the product from individual stores and shipping it to the customer, if that's your online strategy, then it's dilutive. 
Um, whereas for Premier, because they've invested in this centralised DC um, and a number of other reasons, they actually make more money from an online sale. So they're pretty happy to see their sh- sales shift online. And I think in the future, they'll go forward, hopefully with a pretty similar number of sales and growing, um, but with the, the, the mix of that sales coming more from online and less from bricks and mortar retailers. So I would be thinking about that. Like, I think there'll be a time where the market will just really quickly go, all right, vaccines, it's all back on, baby. Like long, all the st- all the opening off up trade short all the stuff that worked last year and actually you're going to get an opportunity to buy some really good businesses in that um so we really want to thank you for coming on today um we're almost out of time but hopefully this won't be the last time you join us um if anyone in the equity mates community wants to find out more about yourself or more about early i hope i said it right that time (laughs) uh where should they go uh, so our website, so just Google Early Australian Share Fund. We've got a lot of information on our website. We share a lot of stock stories, quarterly um, quarterlies videos, things like that. Nice one. Um, now, as Bryce said, we do like to end with the same final three questions. So we'll uh, get stuck into them. And the first one is, uh, do you have any books that you consider must read? And these can be investing or otherwise. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that the otherwise part because like I know that I know a lot of people and a lot of friends I have in the industry that are sort of like, They'll only read a book if it's, you know, um, Howard Marks or they'll only go to the movies if it's Wolf of Wall Street. And like, <laughs> I, I'm not, I, did, I did that when I was younger. I read all the investing books and I'll read if it's a really good or somebody's recommended it to me. Now I'll read it. But I, I prefer fiction, nonfiction, anything but investing, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you, yeah, you, you never know where you're going to get information. Like I was at Nelson Bay for a holiday last week and they just had a bookshelf there. So I just picked up um, Mao's Last Answer. And that's a biography. And I just walked away from that thinking like if you want to understand why the Chinese people have this pact with the Chinese government where they're willing to give up a bit of human rights for – ever-increasing economic growth and standard of living like read that book like read about what life was like for the average Chinese person in the 70s in the cultural revolution and it'll teach you everything that you need to know so you never really know where you're going to get a lesson Um, so I think reading widely um, for investing the number one book I'd recommend is um, a book called so it's by Marathon Asset Management and it's a book called Capital Returns I'm sure people have recommended this on your podcast before but so basically oh god it's such a good book but basically there it's it's a bunch of their investment letters over the years um, and the research that they've done but their their idea is about investing through a capital cycle so it's just and a very easy to understand brilliant book uh Another one, anything by Joel Greenblatt. I think mm, he's yeah, a really yeah. good writer. The little, what was it? The, the little book that meets the market. such embarrassing names. I know. <laughs> the little book that meets the market. Honestly, that's what we're finding throughout the investing landscape. Like one of the best basics books we've ever read was Patrick O'Shaughnessy's, but he's called it Millennial Money. Yeah. Terrible name. Terrible name. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, other like non-fiction books are like anything by um, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I just read his new book. It's fantastic. Um, there's a book called um, Factfulness by yeah, Hans yeah. Rosling. That's brilliant. Another one in a similar vein. So basically like the thesis of that is that the world's just gotten so much better on any measure that you can look at. Uh, and we yet you, so often you hear people say like things have never been worse. Like yeah. think, of that, think of that last year, you know. If if our generation's like World War II is like sitting at home watching Netflix and <laughs> baking sourdough, like 
ship it in. I don't mean, to, you know, I know people were dying, but yeah. you've got to put it in the context of like 100 years ago, pe- you know, people were dying of infectious diseases at a, at a rapid rate. Infant mortality was through the roof. So in the context of where we've come from, I think there's always reasons to be really optimistic and put the challenges that we face in context. So factfulness, and another one in that vein is anything by Steven Pinker, but he has this really good book called um, – I think it's called what's that saying like the better angels of our nature is that the same yeah, that's yeah. The same. so oh. that's the book it's about the history of war um but again like when you read it you're like god we had some really horrible ways of killing each other thousands of <laughs> years ago yeah. um so you know you read these books and like they're terrifying but i think it's useful to know where we've been and and, and where we've come to mm. yeah that's that's a great list um so the second question which we're trialing again this year um in 60 seconds, uh, what's the best business you've ever come across? Oh, it sucks because we don't own it. We've never owned it. Uh, and I'm sure you get this answer a lot, but it's got to be REA. Really? Really? Yeah. What, so, why is that? Because so if you think about it as a user, you, you sell your house maybe once every seven to ten years. You've got no idea what the price of marketing is every seven to ten years. So your agent says – oh, yeah, and it'll cost you two and a half grand to list an RAA. You're like, mm, yep, yeah, cool. You've got no idea if that's been inflated or, or no idea. And what's your alternative? Like, are you going to stick a sign up in the window of your house saying, like, for sale? No. like Not it's bad. The, <laughs> <Gun> <laughs> it's, <free. laughs> it's Exactly. Like, it's the biggest asset you own. Um, the difference between meeting every eyeball possible and not can – be hundreds of thousands of dollars so you'd never try to scrimp two and a half grand actually i know some people that probably would um but most people never would try to scrimp two and a half grand so really honestly over time they could double that what are you going to do they've totally skewered the market Um, i know look domain is probably in a similar vein in some pockets um but if you were if you were you know if you did have sticker shock um, it's almost as though the as more expensive that rea becomes the more likely that you drop the second player um you know, so if you did have sticker shock at the the cost of marketing, I do worry that you know maybe it would be domain that you didn't go for, and then all of this is in the context of the fact that you know before REA and domain, we used to spend a lot more money advertising in print. So you know, a, a really big print campaign today, you could be spending ten grand. Yeah. So I actually think the value that you know that consumer surplus, like the value that it gives consumers, is is more than the the cost of the advertising. Um, so it's a business with pricing power, very high margins. And I say, you know, it's painful because we don't own it because we come so close at different points in the past. And I've made that mistake that is so easy to make of thinking, you know, oh, the multiple is just too high for me. So that's something that I always try to push back against because, you know, for a business with phenomenal returns and free cash flow generation, the multiple is always going to be high. It should be high because a dollar of earnings from that business is worth more in your pocket than a dollar of earnings in a capital intensive business. So, yeah, it should be high. and, And that's a mistake that we've made. Fair enough. I'm I'm really liking this question. We're getting some good answers. <laughs> what what do you, what's the most common answer? Well, You're the second second time we've asked. we've asked it. First answer was Macquarie Group. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah we own that. That's a good business. Oh, nice. Yeah, a very good business. <laughs> um, and then the final question, um, if you think back to your younger self, you know, when you were getting your first 10 Commonwealth Bank shares, um, <laughs> 50. What, oh, 50. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what advice would you have for your younger self? Um I think I guess it's what what I said before about like you don't have to study finance. You don't have to take this cookie cutter path. I feel like embarrassed a little bit when people ask, you know, even your CV, like it just feels very vanilla. Like I went to Sydney Uni, I studied commerce, finance, economics, and then I, you know, did did internships and then I went straight into this industry. Um, And that's fine. Like it's worked for me, but like 
I think maybe I would have had more fun or, or, or stretched my brain a bit more if I'd done something else. Like I think the UK model where you, st- you know, go off and study whatever, like if you want to study Russian literature, like ship in the Dostoyevsky. <laughs> like, you don't need to study finance. Like that, that would probably be my, my lesson. Great note to finish on, Emma. We have had such a ball with you today. It's been very interesting and I know a lot of our audience would have got a lot out of that interview. So, uh, I very much appreciate your time. And as Ren said, hopefully it's not the last time this year. So yeah, thank you very much for having it. me. Thanks, and uh, for the rest of the Equity Mates community, uh, the podcast doesn't finish here. You can keep in touch with us at uh, equitymates.com. If you want to contact us, uh, you can hit us up at contact at equitymates.com. Don't forget about uh, Comedian V Economist and also our Get Started Investing podcast for the beginner buffets out there. But uh, Ren, until then, it's been fun. We'll chat next week. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.